Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're continuing our series, The Triumph of the Lamb, in the book of Revelation. So let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, as we look into a message entitled, Jesus Against Lethargy. Complacency is the great enemy of the faith. Ron Meredith tells the story of watching a majestic sight. It was an evening in the country, and he was watching the flight of geese against the silhouette of the moon. But against this almost dreamlike background, he describes another scene also present to the event. It's the scene of a group of tame geese in a nearby pond on his farm. They had become content in feeding on the grain on the farm. And listen how he describes that event. He says, they, that is the tame geese, heard the wild call that they had once known. The honking out in the twilight sent little arrows of prompting deep in their wild yesterdays. Their wings fluttered in a feeble response. The urge to fly, to take their place in the sky for which God had made them, was sounding in their feathered breasts, but they never raised from the water. The matter had been settled long ago. The corn of the barnyard was too tempting. Now their desire to fly only made them uncomfortable. You know, eventually, every person is like that. I've known non-Christians who once were deeply stirred with the message of Christ, and as time goes by, they remained unresponsive, and the stirring lessened, and their ability to respond in faith was now gone. But Christian people can be like that as well. Once the call for zeal, for faith, for confident action in the name of Jesus moved them, But now the same call only makes them uncomfortable. The urge to take flight only makes their wings stir a little. And then they go on eating barnyard corn. You know, we have been looking at the seven churches in Revelation, examining the message that Jesus has to them. The church in Ephesus, while doctrinally sound, had lost its first love. The church in Smyrna was faithful but bearing up under persecution, and the situation was about to become worse. The churches in Pergamum and Thyatira had not confronted false teachers and false prophets, and therefore some in their number were committing sexual immorality and participating in feasts in the temples of idols, probably for economic reasons, but also out of lust. But when we come to the church in Sardis, the situation becomes worse. Indeed, as we study this church, some of us, I am praying, might become alarmed. What has happened to this church is very much like what is happening so often in churches everywhere. Some of us might find ourselves confronting ourselves in what Jesus says to the church in Sardis. I'm reading Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And to the angel in the church of Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. You still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life." I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Now, before we learn about the ancient city of Sardis and who the church of Sardis was, I think it's best to start with Jesus' words in verse 2. Wake up. You know, the perhaps more literal translation of those words would be, be watching or be alert or for our purposes, stop being so complacent. You know, I think those words are very carefully chosen because of the history of the city of Sardis. The city itself was built on a very steep and impregnable acropolis. As such, the city was secure. Indeed, the city was impervious to attack. Given its geography, it could literally hold off any attacking force, no matter how large it would be. But as strange as it is to say it, that was precisely its weakness. Twice in its history, Sardis had been so completely defeated that the city of Sardis became a proverb in the ancient world. You know, its first defeat came at the hands of the Persians. The great Persian army had surrounded the city, and one of the Persian commanders had noticed on one rock cliff leading up to the wall an especially imposing and insurmountable barrier that, on the top, he noticed had no guards at all. The citizens of Sardis were confident in their wall and were completely complacent. But at one point, one of the soldiers in Sardis had actually dropped his helmet over the wall and then had climbed down on a track that no one of the Persian side had observed. Then having gone down to the ground to get his helmet, he dutifully went back up the wall, holding his helmet up on the same path that he had come down on. The Persians watched and in amazement realized that this place on the wall was left unguarded. And so when the time was right, the Persians climbed the wall in the very same place and entered the city of Sardis with absolutely no one stopping them. The citizens of Sardis had become completely complacent. That same scenario was repeated again by the Syrian forces of Antiochus. But needless to say, by the time of the writing of Revelation, the name of the city Sardis was proverbial, careless complacency. And so against this background, hear the words of Jesus, wake up. Be alert. Do you not know what danger you're in? You're fast asleep, and in your slumber, you're about to suffer catastrophe. You think nothing is going to threaten you, but you're about to die. Well, clearly, this church is far more perilous situation than the church is suffering persecution. So what's going on here? The city of Sardis at the time of this writing was a city that was located at a junction of five major roads. And because of this, Sardis was a city of considerable wealth, and it's reasonable to assume that many of the Christians in that city were wealthy as well. The citizens of Sardis were well known for their luxurious lifestyles, and like other cities, Sardis did promote emperor worship, but as we're going to see, this matter did not seem to affect the Christians who were living in that city. How is that possible? So let's begin with Christ's introduction of himself to the Christians in the city. He introduces himself as one who has two things, the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, the seven spirits of God, as we have seen in the past, is a reference to the Holy Spirit. The number seven speaks of completeness or fullness. You know, in other places in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is spoken of in his plurality of functions. See, Jesus is saying to the church in Sardis that he comes to them in the power of the Holy Spirit and that it is the Holy Spirit alone who can awaken them from their complacency. But he also wants them to understand that he has the seven stars, which, as you will remember, stands for the angels of the seven churches. 
Christ owns the churches, and he is deeply concerned for them. And so having introduced himself, Jesus begins with no commendation at all. His only commendation would happen later. Some of you, he says, are not complacent, but the majority of you are. And this would have been shocking to the church in Sardis. I mean, why? Because they had a reputation of being alive. Let's see if we can understand. Whatever it is that Jesus means when he says that you're dead and strengthen what remains and is about to die and your works are incomplete, whatever he means by that, he's not speaking to only some of them. Remember in Pergamum, Jesus said that some of you hold the teaching of Balaam. And in Thyatira, he says, you tolerate the woman Jezebel, meaning that the church should have disciplined her. I mean, the idea behind that is that these churches were not taking care of the problems that only a few of them were causing. But in Sardis, the problem is with the majority. And if we're still left with a question of what's going on, and here is what we know. Almost always, when the prophets of old condemned sin, they did so with specificity. And that's to say, they didn't call for a repentance without being specific. Simply saying that they're spiritually dead leaves us with a question, in what way are they spiritually dead? Now, I'm assuming that the Christians in Sardis knew exactly what Jesus was referring to, and with a little study and thought, we will know it as well. I will begin by simply noticing that Jesus does not mention false teaching in Sardis. Unlike Thyatira and Pergamum, no one was toying with the emperor cult. And unlike Ephesus, he does not suggest that they've lost their first love. Apparently, this might have been a church that was very loving towards one another and in their relationships with each other. No, they didn't have problems that some of the other churches had. But on the other hand, There is this one thing that they did not have that others did. There was no one persecuting them either. And when we think about that, that is quite strange indeed. Beginning March 6th, we'll be introducing a new, exciting video-based ministry program called Truth and Life Today. Truth and Life Today is a new venture designed to give Dr. Newfeld the opportunity to speak directly to the many Bible and Christian life questions we receive from our listeners every day. Now you'll get the chance to hear and see Dr. Newfeld answer your questions. Truth and Life Today will be released every Monday at truthandlifetoday.com. There you'll also have the opportunity to send in your questions to Dr. Newfeld for a future episode. So make sure to join us every Monday or check out any of our previously broadcast episodes at any time, all at truthandlifetoday.com. And to receive more information about all the Bible teaching resources, events, and activities taking place for Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and In Doubt, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. The Christian church in Smyrna had been suffering the fires of persecution. Jesus had said, I know your tribulation and your poverty. The cult of the emperor was compounded in Smyrna by the hatred that came from the leaders of the Jewish synagogue, who, as you may remember, years later, would gather wood on the Sabbath in order to burn the leader of the Christian church to death in that city. And that's fascinating. The Jews had received a special dispensation from Rome, which allowed them to be excused from mandated times of emperor worship. But Christians were not afforded such grace. 
And when the time of persecution came, ironically, the Jewish community led the way. Jesus had called theirs a synagogue of Satan. Now, the situation in Sardis was in some ways no different than in Smyrna. Emperor worship was demanded, but was there no Jewish synagogue in Sardis? Well, indeed there was. We're told that Sardis housed one of the largest Jewish synagogues in the world. It it held over a thousand people. And yet, in spite of frequent conflict, no conflict existed here. That seems strange. You know, perhaps this city is just different, or was it? Let me quote to you from Bible teacher Leon Morris. He says, Why did both Jews and Romans leave this church undisturbed, unlike some of its neighbors? The answer may well be its lack of aggressive and positive Christianity. Now, I think Dr. Morris is on to something, but he does not specify what kind of aggressive Christianity he has in mind. Look back at Revelation 3, verse 5. Jesus there says, the one who conquers will be clothed in white. Now, clearly, Jesus meant for the church in Sardis to be engaged in a great battle and to conquer on his behalf, but they were not. But again, as before, conquer how? Look again at verse 5. There Jesus promised to the one who conquered that he will confess his name before his father and before the angels. Now, the minute you hear that kind of language, if you know your Bible well, you'll immediately think about Jesus' words in Matthew 10, verses 32 to 33. Let me read the passage. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, with that in mind, let me turn to Revelation 12, verse 11, which is a description of the conquering church of Jesus Christ. There we read, and they have conquered him, that is, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives unto death. Notice the words, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, that is to say, they would not be quiet about what Christ had done both for them and what he had done in dying on the cross to make way an avenue of reconciliation before God. And so, as we can see, with a little bit of digging, a very clear picture now emerges. The church in Sardis was not a church that entertained false teaching as they did in other churches. They're not an unloving church. Indeed, if you had gone there, you would have sensed their care and concern for others. Indeed, when Jesus said that he had found their works incomplete, it means that it was something they had not done. But they had done other things, and I have to assume that there was a lot of Christian ministry going on among the Christians in Sardis, so much so that whatever they were engaged in and however they constructed their worship, the general reputation that they had was that this church was alive. But what they had left undone was an aggressive proclamation of Jesus about his cross, about his blood that was poured out for the sins of the world, and about the need for all to repent and turn to Christ. They were not doing evangelism. And for this reason, and for this reason alone, that they, unlike the other churches in the Roman province of Asia, this church was not suffering the fires of persecution. And what is Jesus' word to a church that does not do evangelism? Well, it's quite clear, is it not? He says, you're dead. Any church that does not actively promote Christ and his gospel to the unsaved world has shown that they're ashamed of Christ, and the only solution to this is that they must repent. So we've got to stop here and 
make application. We should not miss what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church today. The places in the world where Christians suffer persecution is in the very areas where they are openly sharing the gospel. Satan does not like to have his kingdom invaded and his slaves transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But how subtle is this temptation? I know of countless Christian organizations that feed the poor but neglect gospel proclamation as essential. I know of churches involved in hundreds of charities but do not strategize how to reach the lost with the gospel, and any time we claim to be alive, while we also demonstrate that we're ashamed of the gospel, we incur the displeasure of our Savior. The words to us are simple, repent, and strengthen whatever evangelistic impulse remains. And with this word of condemnation comes a frightening word of warning. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. See, I find this to be a very telling word. Every church, no matter where we are located, every church must decide whether it fears men or whether it fears Christ. If we fear men, we do not fear Christ. If we fear Christ, well, we do not fear men. See, I know that some of us have never entertained even the slightest sense that it might be that Christ will come against the church or against the person who names Christ. But right here in verse 3, he makes it plain that he does do so. And so fear Christ, and you will not only do away with the fear of man, but fear Christ, and you will make him known among men. But then, Jesus also gives a note of encouragement. Some in Sardis have not soiled their garments by fearing the persecutions of men. Just a few have not been ashamed of the gospel. And with that is a promise. Those who, as Revelation 12 verse 3 reminds us, who did not love their lives unto death, these, says Revelation 3, 5, will be clothed with him in white. I think the white here speaks of the blameless character of the saints. And so with that command to repent comes a promise. Verse 5 says, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Now, first of all, the book of life is a book that is often alluded to in the Scripture. In Exodus 32, after Israel sinned in the incident of the golden calf, in verse 32, Moses speaks of blotting his name from your book. And in Philippians 4, verse 3, Paul speaks of those whose names are in what he calls the book of life. But in Revelation, this book is alluded to often. Revelation 13, verse 8 mentions the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. And in Revelation 17, verse 8 says that those who go to destruction are those whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Revelation 20 actually mentions two books, one being the book that records the deeds that every human being has ever done. This book is the book that chronicles why our damnation is just. But the other book, the book of life, is those who rightfully deserve death but are washed in the blood of the Lamb. But, and this is the key, how could anyone's name be blotted out of the book of life given that it was already done before the foundation of the world. Well, in reality, Revelation 3.5 does not say that Jesus will blot someone's name out. 
What it does say is that those whose walk is in white will never have their name blotted out. That's to say, when we are truly saved, and by saved, I mean that our sins are washed away, and we find in Jesus the master of our souls, and for his sake would gladly go even unto death, when true salvation happens, anyone who is truly saved has the assurance that his or her name will never be blotted out. Indeed, having one's name in the Lamb's book of life ensures that Jesus will confess our name before the Father. And with that, Christ's words to the complacent church in Sardis rings out like a goose calling to a domestic bird on the ground. Wake up! Come to your senses. Find in Jesus a treasure worth more than life. Heavenly Father, I pray for your church. Help us not to be afraid to mention the name of Jesus. Help us to be open in our disclosure of Jesus. May we become fishers of men, O Lord God. May we faithfully proclaim Christ and his gospel to our culture that so desperately needs to hear. Help us to wake up and be proclaimers of your name. We pray. Amen. John, I love this message because at the very heart of evangelism, the very heart of what God has called us to do is to to go out and, and make disciples and tell nations about who he is. But in our culture today, I think we sort of watered it down, even within the church, where it's just sort of happy messages of Jesus or things of that nature. But that's not what we're being called to do. Yeah, you know, in our conversation, Ben, you and I were talking in the break about friendship evangelism and how often it is we get to the friendship part, but we never get to the evangelism part. And so I think there's a challenge here. I think local churches need to be training all of God's people as an essential part of being a follower of Jesus, that we need to learn how to share our testimony, and we need to know how to share the gospel. It's a part of basic Christian training. And then I think we need to celebrate evangelists and celebrate encounters that we have in sharing the gospel. And we need to, as well, keep on urging and encouraging this, because I think that if we're not doing that, that is, urging people, they're not doing it. And so this lethargy that kind of surrounds us is this lethargy towards proclaiming the gospel. And in reality, you know, Christ comes against us. Well, let's go out and speak the truth of who Jesus is. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. The Celebration Caribbean Cruise is scheduled for February 2018. Join Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, great musical guests in the entire Back to the Bible Canada ministry team on board the Royal Caribbean's Freedom of the Seas. It's a five-day journey to some of the most beautiful and exotic islands and locations. Enjoy everything the cruise has to offer, along with inspirational Bible teaching, worship, fellowship, encouragement, and laughter. This is a vacation event for the entire family that you won't want to miss. So make plans today and call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit backtothebible.ca for all the cruise details. Space is limited, so don't be disappointed and book now. 
And just as an added reminder, all ministry vacation events are paid for by the participants and no ministry resources are used for this purpose.